0: Welcome to the 16th episode of the Lebanese Physicians uh, podcast. And uh, today we will be talking about immigration law, especially with the recent uh, match of a lot of uh, uh, foreign medical graduates in the US. Right now, that is the primary thing on their mind at this point, is the visas that are needed to come over to the US. Uh, Today, we have uh, two guests. We have uh, Ms. Sarah uh, Peterson-Stansrod, who is an immigration lawyer and the founder of SPS, Immigration Law, in uh, Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota. And she is, has been a very active member of the American Immigration Lawyers Association and has been on the board of directors uh, since 2012. She has also lectured extensively nationally and internationally on uh, employment immigration law. And her specialty, actually, one of her major specialties is healthcare law in addition to other employment uh, based law. And also, we have with us uh, Dr. Wasim Abdullah, who is currently a uh, resident and soon to be chief resident at uh, the Indiana University School of Medicine, who himself is a foreign medical graduate and has been through the uh, visa process in the past and will be going through it uh, in the future, I guess, uh, too. So, welcome, uh, Sarah, and welcome, Wasim. Thank you. Thank you. All right, I'm going to leave the floor to you, Wasim, to start asking some questions uh, and uh, we can direct it from there.
1: All right, perfect. So. I wanna first uh, congratulate all the graduates who were able uh, to match, um, especially the foreign graduates. I know you've been uh, through a lot of studying and the hassle of uh, applying for the match and all that stuff. So congratulations for uh, this big achievement. Um, I have been through uh, the visa process as Dr. Diab has said, and we thought about doing this podcast to ask questions to some uh, somebody who's an expert in immigration law. So I would like to thank uh, Ms. Peterson uh, for uh, giving us uh, you know her time and her expertise so uh without uh, further delay i will uh, just start uh, you know by the you know basic question for people to understand what is a j1 visa so a lot of people hear about j1 visa so can you please just uh, kind of like in a few words explain uh what it is
2: right a j1 visa is for a really broad variety of intercultural exchange programs but specifically to physicians it is uh, there's a a specific program for international medical graduates who are seeking to come to the U.S. to do residency and or fellowships, fellowship subspecialty training.
1: Uh, thank you. So uh, the question that a lot of people are asking now is, so how do I apply for a J-1 visa? Where do I apply for a J-1 visa? Sometimes, you know, a Lebanese person who lives in Lebanon and did their med school in Lebanon applying to the U.S., that's kind of easy. You know, they know they're going to apply in Lebanon in the US Embassy. But what about uh, if a foreign person is living in Lebanon, did their med school there and that was their country of last residence, would that be the place, like would Lebanon be the place where they should get their paper and all that stuff to apply for a J1 visa or they should go to their country of citizenship to do that?
2: Right, so ECFMG, which we'll talk about I'm sure as we continue, they are the entity that regulates all J1 clinical physicians in the United States. And ECFMG expects a statement of need, which every J1 clinical physician has to have to come from the country of permanent residence if you're living, living permanently in another country other than your country of nationality. So it really depends on, you know, are you living permanently in a second country? Then the statement of need should come from that country and you should, should process through that country.
1: All right, perfect, thank you. So it has to be a permanent residency and not necessarily just a residency for let's say a couple of years that Correct. should not be enough to get a statement of need from that country, is that
2: Correct. right? Yep, ECFMG they, is really looking for lawful permanent residence, and really um, that should be on the, the DF 2019, which is a form that all J-1 clinical physicians receive. So okay. they really are looking for that permanent tie to a second country.
1: So I, I have a, a specific question for, uh, for Lebanon because kind of like the situation is a little bit special. There are the Palestinian refugees or sons and daughters of Palestinian refugees born in Lebanon, lived in Lebanon, uh, do not have the Lebanese citizenship. They basically don't have like also permanent residency in the country. So, and at the same time, so it's a little bit complicated for them because that's like the most common two uh, combination. It's gonna be either a Palestinian who lives in Lebanon or a Syrian also citizen who lives in Lebanon. Those two cases where there's a war in Syria and sometimes it's hard for, for people to go and try to get those statement of need. Is there like any kind of guidance on that uh, on that subject?
2: Yeah, so those are going to be very factually specific. And my guess, based on what you just described, is that those two sets of individuals would process through Lebanon, working through ECFMG's protocols. But again, every situation is so unique that, that each individual is going to have to look at their set of circumstances. And ECFMG is a really good resource for any J1 physician to help you work through this entire
1: process. All right, so perfect. So basically uh, standing and contacting ECFMG, the J-1 sponsorship, like kind of division and asking them about your specific case, try to get an answer from them. Yes. All right, perfect. And we'll talk a little bit later about like other visas and maybe like other alternatives for people who have like a hard time finding like getting a J-1 visa. So th- th- there will be a question about that. So also another thing that a lot of people kind of ask about regarding J-1 visa is this idea of having a two year home requirement. So can you just kind of explain also kind of simply to people what does that mean when they apply for a J-1 visa?
2: Right. So any clinical physician who comes to the United States in J-1 status has a two-year home residence requirement. And that means you have to go home back to your country of nationality, or if you happen to. To have the country of last residence on your DS 2019. It's that ho- it's that country, but it's only, it's only that country to uh, fulfill a two-year home residence requirement. And that's because the J1 waiver pro for the J1 program is an intercultural exchange program. So there are options to waive that two-year home residence requirement, and we'll likely talk about them down the road. But understand, if you enter the United States in J-1 status as a clinical physician, you inherently have a two-year home residence requirement, and that means you are ineligible for H-1B status, the main way physicians work in the United States, and for your green card status. So it's a it's a big deal. But certainly there are many ways to overcome that two-year home residence requirement should you want to stay in the United States long-term.
1: Perfect. Yeah, and and uh, you know we'll we'll talk a little bit more about the uh, waiver for those uh, two-year home. Uh, requirements but kind of also to to um kind of make it clear for everyone who's going to be listening to this podcast uh, this is going to be a two-year home doesn't mean you only have to leave the us but also you have to go and reside in that country that where you got your statement of need from so you don't you can't just like be you know a french uh you know got your statement of need from france and you go live in germany for two years and then apply to the us right you have to go back to that country that gave you the statement of need. That's absolutely that's right. correct. Yep. All right, perfect. So that's for people listening some people think about oh I would go work in Dubai for like 2 years. <laughs> right. I'm from, you know, I'm from Turkey, I would go work in Dubai for 2 years and then come to the US again. That's not how it's done. If you want to do the 2 year home requirements. Perfect. Yes, yeah, right.
2: that's a very critical point. Yep.
1: So what is, so a lot of people are confused about, and that's probably like something special to the U.S., specific about the difference between a visa and a kind of status. So what is DS-2019, and what how is it different from like just having a J-1 visa stamp on your passport?
2: Right, so a visa is simply a sticker that the U.S. government puts in your passport, and the sticker permits you to present yourself at a port of entry and, and, and seek entrance into the United States. So it's a mandatory element of entry in the United States, but a visa does nothing more than that. It doesn't give you any sort of legal status. For J-1 physicians, you will get a form called DS-2019, and that's really your, your legal status document. ECFMG, the, the um, overseen organization, will issue that document to you every year. It's good for one year increments. And that's really how you prove your legal status for the entire duration of your training in the United States.
1: All right, perfect. And that would be, would that be like the reason why people can stay in the US while having a valid DS 2019 even if their visa has expired? Is that right?
2: So if your visa expires while you're in the US and you have your valid DS 2019, that means nothing other than the next time you leave the country, you need to renew your visa. Um, I believe right now, I looked it up before the podcast, Lebanon is actually issuing five-year visas for Lebanese J-1 physicians, and they're good for multiple entries. Now that can change, right? Um, that's based on reciprocity between the United States government and Lebanon. But um, but again, you know, depending on the, the length of your training program, the, the visa expiration doesn't do anything regarding your ability to remain in the country, but you always have to have a valid DS-2019.
0: Which, which has to be in your yearly okay. basis right?
2: Correct. ECFMG will renew that working in conjunction with your with your training program each year.
1: All right. And for, for how long can a person stay in the U.S. if they, let's say, receive a valid first DS-2019 in like 2015? So if they change their status, let's say in between also, let's say in 2017, they, they were research scholars. And then in 2017, they changed their status to alien physician. Would that start the recount from the beginning of how many years they can stay in the U.S. or it's all combined?
2: Yeah, good question. So keep in mind that physicians can do up to five years as a research scholar, but the government just clarified that if you do more than three years, they may not approve the change from a research scholar to a clinical physician. So keep that in mind if you are a physician who's doing uh, the research piece of it now. Also keep in mind, you can never go from clinical physician to research scholar. So you can go from research to clinical, but not the other way. And so, so research, you know, legally you can have up to five years, but really practically it's about three years and you should do the transition. And then the clinical J1 can be up to seven years as long as you're making progress in your, your specialty or subspecialty training program. And then in exceptional circumstances, they will um, extend it for an eighth year. And then you really need um, a statement of need and a statement of exceptional um, circumstances from your sending government.
1: And so those years on research scholar will be counted into the seven years. No, I'm sorry, just
2: to be clear, they're they're separate. They're separate buckets. So, okay. so really, I would say practically up to three years as a research scholar, and then up to seven years as a clinical physician. Again, as long as you can only go for as long as your is your training program permits.
1: Okay, so if you switch, let's say you were in twenty fifteen, a research scholar. 2017, you switch to clinical physician, mm-hmm. you still have from 2017, seven extra years to do your training,
2: right, as long as it's, it's in a progression, right? Yeah.
1: Okay, perfect. So that would be like, maybe nine years on like J one in the US could be yeah. Without, yeah, okay. All right, perfect. That's a lot. That's a question that a lot of people ask. There's also one question I got is, what if somebody had a DS, let's say they came to the US on a research scholar, and they're contract for some reason was done for like five years. And they got a DS 2019 for five years, but then they decide after two years to switch to clinical physician, would that cause an issue or like it's just like those three extra three years will not be counted?
2: Yeah, I mean, again, so ECFMG will oversee this all and in, in my experience, ECFMG is pretty amenable to that sort of a switch as long as there's a reason for doing so. But that would be a situation again where you would want to re- reach out to ECFMG because ECFMG is going to have to get confirmation from the US Department of State.
1: So. What is and I know that's kind of more specific to the embassy, but what is a service fee? Because a lot of people get asked about it, and how many times do I have to pay it, and all that stuff. So, yeah. So it? there's a
2: lot <laughs> of there's a lot of government agencies, right? And so. When you embark upon this process, you will start working with ECFMG in their system to register you and any dependents that you have. So you'll create that electronic portal. And then ECFMG will work in CVis, which is the Student and Exchange Visitor Information System. It's what we use for J's, for F1 students and whatnot. So CVis is the program that, it, that actually uh, kicks out your DS 2019 every year. And you only have to pay the fee once if you are in the same program. So in other words, um, Wasim, you gave the example of a a research J-1 moving into a clinical J-1. Those are different programs. And so that would be an instance where you pay SEVIS for the research side of it one time, and then SEVIS fee for the clinical side of it one time. But once you move into the clinical, even though you're renewing your DS 2019s each year, you're not renewing, you, don- you only have to pay that CVS
1: fee once. All right, and th- is that the same, even if somebody let's say matched into a fellowship and going somewhere else, would they have to pay a new CVS fee or they can just like rely on that first one that they paid?
2: That is actually a question. I think it's only one time, but I don't have a concrete answer for that.
1: All right. Perfect. So basically we'll have to also like reach out to uh, ECFMG kind of make sure that this yeah, is, that's, you know, what I
2: guess I never is. thought about that, but I, yeah,
1: Thank I you. I don't so, pay the uh, fees. So I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. You're lucky. Other, another question also is can I moonlight and meaning like working in the U S uh, extra shifts to make more money while I'm on, on a J one visa?
2: No, you are only authorized to work for your training program. And and while your training program may send you to different sites, you're only authorized to work for for the training program listed on your DS-2019.
1: So now another question is regarding other visas. So people hear about other like options to come to the U.S. I know J-1 is kind of the most common one used, but what are other visas that people can train to residency and fellowship in the U.S.? and how are they different from um, the J-1 visa?
2: Yeah, so as I'm sure everyone is aware, oftentimes you have married couples, <laughs> and one of them may be in J-1. If you happen to be in that situation, the J-2 permits a work authorization. So that's a very simple way, clean way to bring the family unit to the United States. But a different option is an H-1B visa. And again, that's a professional uh, visa for physicians in any other occupation. H-1B is tricky for a couple of different reasons. So I've been doing this a long time. And when I first started out practicing an immigration law up to about 2005, about, it was a split between programs in terms of whether they would permit uh, residents and fellows to come in J-1 or H-1B. But because H-1B is so much more heavily regulated of a program, it costs more, there's just a lot more to it. Um, more and more programs started forcing their residents and fellows to use the J-1 program. So, so most likely it's going to be up to your program. I think there are very few programs left that actually let the, the the physicians choose. They're going to tell you that you are coming in J-1 or they actually let you use H-1B. So again, it's up to your program. If you go to a program that permits H-1B, remember H-1B is limited for six years. And as Lebanese citizens, if you are able to extend your H-1B status past that point, it would only be for one year and it's a very limited situation when that happens. So if you're doing a residency in internal medicine or one of the primary care fields, you have three years in H-1B to do the training, and then you have three years remaining to to go work in your professional job and to go through the green card process. But, you know, like Wasim, you told me you're doing chief residency, and then you're going on for your ID fellowship, you're going to run out of H-1B time. And and there may be other solutions for you, but that six-year H-1B limit really hurts a lot of doctors who subspecialize. And then another option is, again, if you're married, if your spouse has H1B, you may be able to get an H4 EAD. Um, and then another option, is, which is less common, but usually international medical graduates are quite accomplished. You can look at one which is for individuals with extraordinary ability. And so that could also be an option that you could talk to with your program in terms of how to get through the, the residency um, cycle.
0: Well, yeah, one thing, I mean, just to give an, uh, my, my my perspective of the H-1B, because I came with an H-1B visa and I had that, that requirement where I did my three years of internal medicine, then my three years of fellowship, and I had to find a job at the end of the, my fifth year of, uh, of training actually and then I had an audit and stuff like that so I had to extend my stay-based uh, employment authorization documents so basically I, I had a another legal way of staying uh, but then I had to go get my green card in Lebanon because I did not have a status right in the U.S. at that time so that was one of the downsides of the H-1B at the time that I had.
2: And I think just to kind of build on that, we all know we're living in a world of COVID and embassies and councils are shut down and it's a lot, you know, it's better to remain in this country. And so that six year limit really does create a hardship if you are going into subspecialty programs.
1: Thank you. Uh, So, and obviously now we're going to kind of talk about uh, and ask a few questions about the waiver, because that's, uh, I know that most people who are going to be listening are just starting their residency now and just kind of to figure out how to come um, to the U.S. now on a J-1 or other visa, uh, but also it's good to kind of like keep in mind that if you later on decide to stay in the U.S. and you don't want to go back to your home of uh, home country or country of last residence, you have to do a waiver of that uh, two-year home uh, requirement. So can you just kind of give us like a small uh, you know, summary of like the ways people can uh, receive a waiver for those two years and actually stay in the US immediately after training and start working? Sure, so the most
2: common way is called a Conrad waiver. Each state has up, has up to 30 numbers it can use each year to issue waivers. And that requires that physicians work in a medically underserved area or provide services to uh, patients coming from a medically underserved area. And you have to work for three years full-time in H-1B status. Um, So that's the most common ways, but remember when I was talking about how the programs really shifted from doing half and half of H-1B and J-1s because there are so many J1 uh, physicians seeking the waivers, the Conrad programs have become hyper-competitive these days. And you really want to start, you know, I would say by the end of your, um, you know, uh, by your second year, if you're only doing an internal medicine uh, specialty, you really need to be looking at Conrad waiver programs. Some really great alternatives to Conrad, though, because of that numerical limitation is the Delta Regional uh, Authority, the DRA provides waivers. They also have a three-year service obligation, but they're not limited numerically and both um, primary care and specialists can apply. Also a similar is the Appalachian Regional Commission, same as the DRA, um, it's a three-year service obligation, both um, specialists and primary care can apply, not limited numerically. There's an HHS clinical waiver. Again, it has a three-year service obligation, only for primary care, but not limited. And they really expanded the program this year because of COVID. VAs have a similar waiver program, although they're a little trickier and you should really talk to a lawyer about the VAs because physicians can get hung up. Um, and then two really unique waivers, in particular, we were talking to the Lebanese physicians. There is a hardship waiver, which requires that you show exceptional hardship to a U.S. citizen spouse and or child. The really nice thing about a hardship waiver, you know, it requires you to have bad facts to get a, to get your case approved, but you don't have a three-year service obligation. So if you have a U.S. Um, spouse or child, that might, and you have reasons to to you know convince the government, it would be really hard for you to go back home for two years. That could be a really great option. And then also there's a persecution waiver. It's sort of the same as asylum. It's a little the standards are a little um, less. Um, Expansive, but again, it doesn't have a three-year service obligation. I will also say the most bizarre thing about the hardship and persecution waivers, they're waivers that are based on really, really bad facts, right? That you can't go home for a really compelling reason. You can't change status from J1 to H1B with those programs. You actually have to leave the country and then come back into H come back in the country with an H1B visa. So, it's, it's, a, it's a weird sort of dynamic. But if you get any of the other waivers with a three year service obligation, you don't need to leave the country. You can change your status directly from J1 at the end of your training program immediately into H1B.
1: And since you, you kind of uh, touched a little bit on the, the J2 visa, let's say uh, a person is married, a person who has a J1 visa married to a person who has now a J2 visa doing residency in the US. And that person on J1 visa received a waiver for the two year home requirement and found like a position. Can the J2 person immediately kind of look for a job and kind of switch to that H4 status and start working or like what's what's the procedure for those people?
2: Yeah, so the J2s are covered under the waiver of the J1, so that's good. If the J2 wants to go into H-1B status, what USCIS, our government, has been doing recently in most instances is denying the change of status because USCIS is taking the position that unless and until the J1 fulfills, um, the J2 can't change status. It's, It's not legal. It's bizarre. Um, but they're doing that, but they're very inconsistent. So you can still file for a change of status and fingers crossed they'll approve it. And then in terms of H4, you only get the H4 EAD if the H1B is sufficiently far enough along in the green card process, which usually takes a couple of years post-training. So H4 EAD is not something that, that would likely be immediately available to a spouse.
1: And what about, let's say somebody who was on a, on a J1 visa and let's say they already spent seven years of training and now they wanna continue for an extra year and they didn't apply for that exceptional extension and they switch to an O-1 visa or let's say start like working on O-1 visa. Does that give them a waiver from their two-year home requirement?
2: Unfortunately, no. The only thing that, that gets rid of that two-year home residence requirement is if you go back to the country listed on your DS 2019 and fulfill the two years or you get a waiver and you comply with whatever terms the waiver has. And similarly, it was another question that I get a lot of the times is, I just married a US citizen. Can I just file for my green card? Not if you have the two-year home residence requirement, you either need to fulfill it or you need to get a waiver.
1: All right, and that applies also like to people who win the, you know, visa lottery, like diversity visa lottery and all those stuff that doesn't give you the right immediately. You'd rather be like somebody without any visa and like living in your home (laughs) country when you win those, right?
2: Right. I mean, it's bizarre. the The only visa that gets over that two-year home residence requirement is the U visa, and that's for victims of serious crimes. So, I mean, you can file that away. I've never actually had a physician who was able to use that, but it's the two-year home residence requirement is a pretty binding obligation. So,
1: and you mentioned something about Delta uh, Delta zones uh, and the DRA. Can you can you explain a little bit uh, more what? what are those about? Is this like a federal agency or like?
2: Yeah, so I'll admit, I don't know the states off the top of my head. I always just go to their website, but they'll give you a map of all the qualifying areas within the DRA, the Delta Regional Authority. And if you, if you can find an employer in that area, you know, in that map zone, they can file a J1 waiver for you and then then you have your waiver you have again you have to work for 3 years in that area and these you know delta regional that's a pretty uh, underserved area but it covers a, a wide variety of states um, so really good options. And, you know, DRA and the, the Appalachian Regional Commission, they recently, in the last couple of years, opened up to specialists, which is also really nice for all of you who are subspecializing.
1: And one question I, I get also from people on like uh, O-1 visa, let's say somebody again uh, did not file or like tried to get a waiver, did not receive it, works on O-1 visa. Some people tell them you can go to your home country for like uh, three months every year and if you go to your home country and start like counting those months while you're in your home country you can like in the, in that meantime receive your waiver is that right sure so you so the 2 years is cumulative Right, but you have to be physically in the home country.
2: And I had a client years ago um, who (laughs) she was in it long term, you know, and remember, oh, one is good for three years, and then usually it's extended for one year increments unless there's been a change to the job. So you're really looking at this long haul if you're just going back to Lebanon for three months at a time. So absolutely it's feasible, but but you're in the long haul for that one.
1: (laughs) It takes a lot of years to to, to to cumulative two years, right? Exactly. Perfect. I mean, those are, um, those were like kind of the main questions um, that I had regarding the waiver. I don't know if you have anything to add or uh, Dr. Diab, has, uh, if he has any, you know.
0: No, questions. I think what, what you guys discussed was, uh, what you both discussed was, uh, was great. I think it's important to know what kind of visa coming in uh, on at the beginning, because that's going to impact how you're gonna be able to stay in the US and uh, and apply finally for your uh, green card and, and subsequent year citizenship status. So the initial visa will impact a lot afterwards, we don't think of that, but that's that's an important thing.
2: Yeah, and the, the final thing I think I would say is cool. that you know when you're in your training programs, you know if you're only doing primary care, I would say you know in the beginning or mid of your second year, you really should be looking for jobs and speaking with immigration counsel to make sure that you understand the full panoply of your options. Um, I've been working with physicians my entire career, so about 20 years now, and it's changed tremendously over that 20-year period. So what we're talking about today may be very different in two years from now or five years from now when each one of you is going through your waiver process and finishing up your training program. So start early um, and and you will be thankful.
0: All right. Thank you. Thanks to you both. This was a great discussion uh, and hopefully it will answer a lot of questions that uh, come up for people. And if anybody has further questions, they can consult, I guess, with SPS Immigration Law or, or other immigration lawyers. Uh, to help with their uh, questions afterwards. But hopefully we answered a lot of the questions uh, that people have on their minds uh, at this time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Ms. Peterson. Bye.
2: Thank you, Nice to meet you.
0: Bye bye. Nice to meet you too. Thank
1: you, Dr. Diab. Thanks.
2: Thank you. Thanks.